So we're going to have a look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. So if you want to uh, have it in front of you, again, it's on page 591 in the Church Bibles. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And just as you're finding uh, that, I don't know whether you like gardening. I'm a bit of a fan of gardening, but I'm a very lazy gardener. And uh, one of the things that uh, should delight me, but that often frustrates me, is the fact that plants just won't grow where you put them. So uh, I'm not too lazy to actually uh, read up on stuff and buy things that actually like being in the position I want to put them. And I tend to just buy stuff and stick them in the ground. But apparently plants, uh, some of them like the sunshine, some of them like the shade, some of them like dry ground, some of them don't. Uh, and there seems to be a plant for every position in the garden, and the Lord's made it that way, hasn't he, that there is something that will grow uh, in every circumstance. I have to say, I'm, uh, my favourite plants are, I'm going to call them wildflowers, some might call them weeds, I'm going to call them wildflowers, because <laughs> you just sprinkle them everywhere and then you see what comes up. Um, but my favourite things are, are poppies in that circumstance, because um, they will grow with practically no soil at all, they seem to like those conditions that no one else likes. And I've tried them in the uh, nice bit. I've made a nice plot for them and put loads of uh, compost there. They don't want to know. Uh, where do they grow? Right in the cracks outside my back door, so I can't even get out. But <laughs> there we go. But we're actually going to look at a chapter that talks about this idea that everybody is different. And that actually the key to life, in a sense, is just to be who you are. And if you remember from uh, last week, if you... If, uh, last time, if you weren't here last time, just have a, a look at chapter 5 uh, and verses 18 to 20, the last few verses. And uh, Solomon basically says that it's a great thing for us to um, enjoy the work that we do. Now, whether that's kind of paid work as a job or whether it's uh, the work that we do around the house or the kind of voluntary work that we do or whatever it is, but whatever uh, that our labor is, it's a good thing for us to enjoy it. And it's a good thing for us to benefit from it. And it's actually, uh, he goes on to say that it's a gift from God, that God actually allows us and gifts us uh, work to do. Even Adam and Eve before the fall were given work to do because it's good for us. And actually it's good that we enjoy it and it's good that we uh, benefit from it. Now I wish I had read Ecclesiastes when I was younger because I think when I first started out in work, I just kind of wanted to get it over with as quick as possible, to leave exactly at five o'clock uh, and then live my real life, as it were, which was kind of all the entertainment and the, the other stuff that went around it. And work just seemed to be something getting in the way. But actually, the truth of it is that God gives us work to do and he wants us to enjoy it and he wants us to benefit from it. But actually, you'll see in, uh, as we start on verse six that that's not true for everybody. And actually, uh, he says that it's common among men that people don't enjoy the benefit of their work. And in verses 1 and 2, you'll see that he describes a man who's kind of stopped from benefiting from his wealth and status by circumstances. It says a foreigner consumes it. Now, we don't know what that means. We don't know the circumstances around it. But it's basically this idea that he's not enjoying it, neither is his family and his friends, but somebody completely random who he doesn't even know seems to be enjoying the fruit of his labour and not him himself. And that's a terrible thing to think that actually you're doing all this work, but actually not benefiting from it. And if we think about our own lives, it might be that, uh, you know, you haven't, uh, you're doing your work and you, you've earned some money or whatever it is you're doing. And it's not that's kind of 
somebody else is enjoying that. But it might be just that your job itself is just a real struggle. You know, maybe you've got a job where you're just kind of wading through treacle and there just doesn't seem to be a joy in it. You're really struggling to enjoy it and to, to even benefit from it. You just think, oh, what is the point of it? I just want to get it out of the way. Now, that might be because of the work itself. It might be that you're just doing a really difficult job, a thankless task. Maybe you're trying to do a job where just nobody seems uh, pleased with it and everybody's complaining about it. Maybe you've got a, a boss that's a bit incompetent and just making your life a misery. Maybe you've just got really annoying colleagues or lazy colleagues and you seem to be uh, bearing the burden of the work. Maybe there's just an increased workload. It just seems now that whatever job you're in, there's just too much work and not enough resources and not enough people. So it almost seems as though the the joy and the satisfaction from so many jobs these days just seems to be sucked away. Or it may be that personal circumstances in your life are meaning that you're doing all this work, but you're not actually able to enjoy the the fruit of it. You know, maybe your, your wages are all getting... Uh, sucked up by increased mortgage rates or uh, by taxes or maybe um, you've been, uh, there's been a scam or you've had a burglary or something like that where literally somebody, a foreigner, somebody you don't know seems to be benefiting from uh, the, the, the fruit of your labour. Or maybe it's something uh, about yourself. Maybe it's just a circumstance in terms of illness, uh, maybe uh, anxieties or low moods. It might be just a... Uh, arthritis or something like that just seems to make your job so hard that actually it's just a real slog even just to do your job in the basic one without kind of uh, really being able to excel in it you just feel as though you're kind of plodding along maybe it's some difficult life events maybe it's just something that's happening in your life that just seems to be robbing you of the joy of your work or the joy of uh, of enjoying the benefits of that and it's very easy for us to think well why would god Allow that? You know, because it says, uh, if you look, it says that God does not give him the power to eat of it. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, why does God allow certain circumstances to come about that mean that we can't enjoy our work as we used to do or we don't uh, benefit from the fruit of it as we used to do? Now, obviously, uh, a lot of the things in life, and we've seen that as we've gone through these chapters in Ecclesiastes, is, is a result of the fall. You know, a lot of the things that we come across, uh, you know, when Adam and Eve fell, uh, it said that, you know, it would be hard work. Work would be uh, thistles and thorns and stones. So some of it, I think, is just that. It's just the, the general consequences of the fall that means that work can be hard work. It could be that we could say, well, it's the consequences of our own poor decisions or our own sinful decisions. And actually God is allowing us to um, have to deal with the consequences of those decisions we've made. But actually, if you think of Job, Job was blameless, but God still allowed everything that he had to be taken from him, all that he'd worked for, even his own family to be taken from him. So why does God allow us to go through these difficult times? And I think the answer is that he wants us to rely on him. You know, sometimes the blessings that he gives us can actually um, draw us away from him. Sometimes we get the gifts from the giver and they actually mean that we ignore him. And actually he knows that the greatest thing in life is to know him and to love him. But actually there is no gift that he can give us that is greater than himself. Think of what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. 
You know, so what, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Get rid of all that stuff you've been trusting in, all that stuff that has become a God to you, and follow me, because that's the key to life. Think of what uh, Jesus said in Luke 13, 4 and 5, when there was this terrible uh, death of so many people when a, a, a tower fell on them. He said, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that, you know, we can look at other people's lives and we must think, oh, you know, they've done something wrong or they've made some bad decisions. But actually God allows things to happen to draw us to himself. As I say, think of the story of Job. Why did God allow it? So that Job might be a a testimony to the goodness of God, so that Job's faith might be tested, that he might stand strong when all around him, even his wife, was saying, just curse God and die. And Job said, no, we've got to accept adversity as well as blessing from the Lord. Think of Paul, Philippians 4, verses 12 and 13. Everywhere and in all things, I've learnt both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, what is Paul saying there? He's basically saying that he's been through times of wonderful blessing, but also times when he's suffered need. And we know from other, uh, other passages in the Bible that there were times when he went without food. There were times when he was shipwrecked. There were times when he was left alone and everybody abandoned him. And what Paul is saying is, I look at those times when God has allowed me to go through those difficult circumstances and he has taught me to trust him. You know, we often hear that phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And people often use it when they're going on some incredible uh, mission for the Lord and they're trying to you know, do something that is really difficult and impressive. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But actually, if you look at the context of that, it was just about living with an empty cupboard or living with the disappointment of friends abandoning you. Sometimes it's those small things, those mundane, everyday, difficult things that take the most faith. It's there that we learn that Christ is our strength. In verses 3 to 9, Solomon goes on to look at a different reason why we might not enjoy work or the benefit our labours. Not this time in terms of circumstances, the work itself, or things that are happening in our lives, but actually our attitude towards our work. Verse 3 says, If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. Now, they're strong words, aren't they? They're strong words to think that somebody could have all of these blessings, but actually because of their attitude towards these things, because they will not be satisfied with the good things that they've been given, it would actually be better that they'd never been born. And I think Solomon puts it in language like that to really arrest us and stop us and make us think about our attitude in life. Now, anybody that knows me well will know (laughs) that this is a real issue for me. And this is a real place where I have to uh, be arrested by the Lord to say, what is your attitude to the good things you've been given? You see, again, a long life, many children, grandchildren, they're all a gift from the Lord. They're not something that he gives to everybody. You know, many people, even Christians, uh, die young. Many people die without children. So 
it's not saying anything about you as a person. So God gives this gift to some people, but not others. But what Solomon reminds us in verses three to six is that it doesn't naturally, just because you've got a long life or you've got a big family, it doesn't mean that you are going to be satisfied. Now, here's a man who could live um, thousands of years, he says, father hundreds of children, but still not see goodness, still not appreciate goodness in life. Long life, large families, they don't guarantee a contented and joyful life. It's not because there's no goodness to see. You know, large families, long life is good. But his attitude is so negative that even his kids won't give him a decent burial. You know how awful it is to have to raise a large family, but then for whatever reason to have such a, a bad attitude and to treat them so poorly that none of them want to be involved and even give you a decent burial. You know, burial was a really important thing in those days. And for your family not to even give you a burial was terrible. He's here as a man who's robbed not by circumstances, but by his attitude to life and the way that he treats others. And isn't it one of life's mysteries that some people's lives can be so full of hardship and loss and difficulty, but they seem so thankful and joyful? Other people seem to be, their lives just seem to, on paper, be full of so many blessings, so many uh, rich things, but they're always miserable, always ungrateful. See, our circumstances are not the key. It's our response to them. You know, we can have a good response to bad circumstances. We can equally have a bad response to good circumstances. And as we've seen in previous chapters in Ecclesiastes, contentment and thankfulness, they do enable us to find joy in life. It's not circumstances in themselves, but actually to be content and thankful. Whether we have a lot or a little, whether we live a long or a short life, lots of kids and grandkids or none. As we said before, the grass is not greener on the other side, but where we water it with gratitude and contentment. If we look at verse 9, <clears throat> better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. You know, it's better to look at the things you have and to appreciate them and make the most of them than it is to sit there dreaming of all these things that you might have that you think are going to make your life better. But in verses 3 and verses 7, Solomon goes further than that. He says, yes, there is a key to the earthly life, to, uh, to enjoying earthly life, is to be content and satisfied. But actually, if you look at it, he says we have to be satisfied with goodness. Yes, we can be uh, thankful for earthly things, but if our soul really is to be p- at peace and joyful, it has to be satisfied with goodness. And what do we mean by goodness? Well, we cannot define goodness apart from the Lord. You know, the Lord is good. So when we're talking about being satisfied with goodness, what we're talking about is being satisfied with the Lord himself and recognising that these, good, these things are good things that are given to us by him. Psalm 16, verse 2 that we read earlier says, You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. There is no goodness apart from the Lord. And Solomon, if you look at his life, learned the hard way that our flesh may be satisfied with earthly gifts, even gifts that God has given us. Our earthly uh, flesh can be satisfied even with sin, but our soul can only be find satisfaction in a relationship with God himself. 
Our soul can only find eternal rest in the giver, not the gifts. Look at verse 7. All the labour of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. What did John, uh, Jesus say, John 17, 3? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. See, we may feel satisfied with our life, but if that life is one lived outside of God's kingdom, in a way that dishonours him, and with no relationship with him, then as Solomon states very boldly and very starkly in verses 3 to 5, it had been better if we'd never been born. Why? Because even a long life with wealth and pleasure cannot make up for the eternity of misery that will come after if we don't trust in Jesus. What did Jesus say in Mark 8:36? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? On the other hand, even the shortest life with the greatest pain will be worth it for the eternal weight of glory that will follow death if we know and trust the Lord. You know, think of these two things in stark contrast. You can have everything. You could own the whole world. You could live for thousands of years and have thousands of children and own everything. But then you'll lose it all. Or you can have a short life, maybe one of pain and difficulty. But trusting in the Lord means that you will inherit eternal life. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. A light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See, no matter how fruitless our life may seem by worldly standards, if we love the Lord, if we live for him, we will see fruit in eternity. And that's where our faith comes in. That's where we have to trust that actually living in obedience and love for the Lord is storing for us that treasure in heaven. Because often we don't see it in this life. You know, as I get older and as I remain single and childless, it's hard. It's hard to think that maybe I will die single and childless. But actually, we have to take comfort in the words of Scripture. Now, I'm not technically a eunuch, but uh, in the uh, eyes of the Israelites, the eunuchs were those people that were, you know, physically fruitless in that sense. They couldn't have families. But listen to what. The Lord says in Isaiah 56, 4 to 5, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Do you know what? No matter what you think of your life, no matter what you think of yourself, no matter how many mistakes you've made, no matter how unfruitful you feel you are, no matter how poor you are compared to other people in your own eyes, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives you a name, he gives you a place, he's preparing a place for you and fruit for you in eternity to the point where all of this earthly life will be like nothing. It won't even matter. But we have to live by faith and not by sight. See, as Christians, whatever our lot, we're called to trust God and to worship him. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Why? For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
What's he saying? Be content with what you have. Why? Because you have the Lord. The Lord is with you. Whatever your circumstances, there is cause to rejoice because God is with you in them. He knows them. He's allowed them. He's going to bring good from them. Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labour of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You know, there's a lot of falsehood around these days that if you are, love the Lord and if the Lord loves you, suddenly your life will be fruitful and you can expect riches and you can expect health and never to be ill again. It's rubbish. The Bible is very clear that God allows his people to suffer. But in that suffering, we meet with him. Our relationship is deepened with him and good will come out of it. We might not see it in this life, but we will see it in eternity. In verses uh, 10 and 11, Solomon moves on and says, you know what, don't just be thankful and satisfied with what you have, but with who you are, who God has made you. Now, this is the hardest one. And again, those that know me, I have to put my hands up here. I'm not very good at this. I've spent a lot of my life wishing that I was a different kind of person or I was wishing that I was more like that person or that person. But here Solomon is very clear that if we want to find peace and joy in this life, we must come to terms with who God has made us and we must agree with him that it's, that it's good and that good can come out of it. Look at verse 10. Whatever one is, he has been named already. You see, God has made us all unique. Like those plants in the garden, we're not all the same. God has made us different. Why? Because we're going to f- fulfill different roles in his plans and purposes. You know, we are a display of his wonderful creative um, ability. He doesn't create us all the same. And actually, we've been named already. And naming uh, in, the, in the Jewish world, very much, it's not just, you know, to pick a name out of the air because you found it in a book. But it actually says something about the character and the purposes of the person. You know, when God chose us, he named us. He gave us a certain character and he gave us certain purposes to fulfill. Isn't that wonderful? But what do we do? What do I done for most of my teenage years? Well, I don't accept it. I don't accept the way that God has made me. And what am I really saying? Well, I'm proudly saying that God's made a mistake. That somehow I know better than him and somehow uh, I should have been a different way because then... Uh, I'd have been happier or things would have been better for me. You know, in that sense, self-pity is a real arrogance. And again, it's hard to say it because we all suffer from it. But what we're really saying is that God has somehow made a mistake. He's made us something that we really could have, he could have made us better. Or he could have allowed us not to have those issues. But what does the Bible say? Well, look at verse 10. We cannot contend with him who is mightier than us. Who are we to start telling God that he's made a mistake? Who are we to, as John was saying this morning, you know, we only see a part of our lives. We might think we know ourselves, but we only know that bit from when we were conscious to, you know, when we were old enough to be conscious and and remember things to the bit we are now. We don't see eternity. We don't see what God is going to do in our lives. We don't see what we're going to become in eternity. Who are we to start saying that God has made a mistake? Paul says in Romans 9, 20 to 21, 
But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel of honour and one for dishonour? You know, really, we are clay on the potter's wheel. Who are we to say how God should have made us? We must be careful that we're not striving against who the Lord has made us and trying to be our own God, trying to determine who we should be and how life should kind of revolve around us. This will never bring peace or satisfaction. Psalm 103, we read earlier, says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You see, peace and joy is only found when we agree with God, when we gratefully accept God's design for us and make the most of who we are and what we have. Now, when I was looking at this, there was a a song that kept going around in my head, and I think this is a bit of a niche reference. It might just be me that remembers it, but does anybody else remember Tubby the Tuba? Blank faces. Well, there was a little song that I had when I was a kid, and uh, it was an elephant. It's not highbrow. It was an elephant that said to this Tubby the Tuba, be yourself, you can't be anybody else. And how true that is, even all these years later, I'm singing it to myself, be yourself, you can't be anybody else. If you want something a little bit more highbrow, how about imitation is suicide? If you're trying to be somebody else, then you're killing off yourself. And one of the things that we have to come to terms with when we come to terms with who God has made us It has made us all with weaknesses and limitations. You know, it's not that God has made us sort of wonderfully perfect and all of a sudden all these weaknesses and limitations have come in and he's like, oh, no, what's happened? God knows it. God has allowed us and made us with weaknesses and limitations. We are man, not God. We're not perfect. We're not all-knowing, all-powerful. Not just in the circumstances that we are in, but also in who we actually are. In our mind and in our body, we all have weaknesses and limitations. Why are they there? To reveal the power and the glory of God to ourselves and to others. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, this is not a man that's just kind of come, lived a a blessed and easy life and come to this conclusion, just saying something that he's not learnt by experience. This is someone that really struggled in his life that really went through difficult times. What did he learn? That actually it's in his weaknesses that God's power is displayed. It's in his weaknesses that he is closest to the Lord. It's in his weaknesses actually that he witnesses to others. You know, sometimes we can go around so focused on our strengths because we think that is what will be a witness to other people, that it's where we're strong and where we're able that is most glorifying to God. And that's what I thought. I thought most of my life I'm going to live it and the strengths that I have, they're really going to glorify God. What was I really wanting to do? Glorify me. It's actually in our weaknesses that Christ displays his power. Now, I'm not saying that self-improvement is wrong. 
but we have to be humble before God and start off by being thankful and content with who we are now and what we have. I'm not saying that we can't try and improve and change our lives, but if we can't be content and thankful for who we are now, then we'll never be content and thankful. We also need to be careful about why we want to change. Do we think we deserve better or that God has made a mistake? Are we trying to earn salvation by being something different or doing all of this stuff? Do we think we need to change in order to be loved by God or loved by others? If any of these above are our motivation, then we will never be satisfied, no matter what we become. Verse 11 makes this clear. We may feed our vanity or our insecurities by trying to become all sorts of things, but we will never satisfy our souls. Any form of self-improvement has to be about sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. 1 John 3 verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. And finally on verse 12. Solomon looks at this idea of, you know, who knows what's best for us? Who can define who we are? Who knows what is the best for our future in this life and the next? You know, these days people have become so obsessed by trying to express their true self or find self-fulfillment, living their best life, creating their forever home. They're trying to find peace and joy by becoming someone else, their true or their hidden self, or what they think others will value or what they themselves value as important. Some refer to it as expressive individualism. And it seems to be a new religion, a love of self that demands that no one should question you. No one should stop you becoming what you think you should be or deserve to be. And Paul predicted this thousands of years ago, 2 Timothy 3 verse 1. Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. And Solomon talks about this in the, in the final verse, verse 12. Who knows what is good for man in life? The mistake people make is thinking that their best life is one that's different to the one that they have, rather than living the one they have the best they can. As the saying goes, contentment is found in wanting what we have, not in having what we want. In verse 12, Solomon acknowledged that only God truly knows what is best for us. And for our future. See, he has plans for us. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. He's work for us to do. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This love of self and pursuit of self-expression, and I'll admit, I've fallen into it. Many years of my life, even now, it's so easy to fall into it, but it's vanity, and it only brings more dissatisfaction and depression. Jesus calls us not to feed our vain selves, but to deny them, to worship and serve him, not ourselves. Think of Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In verse 12, Solomon asks a rhetorical question. Who knows what is good for man in life? The answer, only God knows, and only he can bring it about. 
So what can we say in conclusion to this chapter? Satisfaction and joy in life are not found in having more or being someone else, but in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We will never find meaning and satisfaction in this life or the next without humbling ourselves as creatures before the creator, seeking the giver, not the gifts. Peace and satisfaction only come when we face up to the reality and agree with God. We are created beings, sinful and in need of salvation. Our souls will only find eternal rest by coming to Jesus as saviour, being born again by his spirit and becoming like him. As he said in Matthew 11:28 to 29, come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen.